Welcome to Riding Unicorns, the podcast that celebrates high growth businesses and the people behind them. Now, when launching a podcast, I think it helps to have a big hitter guest to really grab people's attention. As such, I'm delighted to introduce Sir Martin Sorrell. You're making uh, an assumption I'd be a big hitter. I may be a, a small hitter. My mother used to say good things come in little packages. <laughs> so this is a small hitter, not, not your usual big hitter, James. <laughs> Well, Sir Martin, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on. Sir Martin Sorrell is founder and executive chairman of S4 Capital PLC, which is building a purely digital advertising and marketing services business for global, multinational, regional, local clients and millennial driven influencer brands. Sir Martin was CEO of WPP for 33 years, building it from a 1 million shell company in 1985 into the world's largest advertising and marketing services company. When Sir Martin left in April 2018, WPP had a market capitalization of over 16 billion and revenues of over 15 billion, profits of approximately 2 billion and over 200,000 people in 113 countries. It really is a pleasure to have you on Riding Unicorn, Sir Martin. Good to be with you, James. Great. So, so Martin, a lot of people coming onto the podcast are going to be either building companies to sell them mm-hmm. or investing mm-hmm. in companies to sell them. But you mm-hmm. have been a buyer of businesses. We build, we build long-term brands. We try and build long-term brands for our clients and we try and build long-term brands for ourselves. I mean, it's counter to much of the conventional wisdom now, but my dad said, find an industry you enjoy, find a company within that industry you enjoy, build a, a reputation, not a reputation externally necessarily but internally or with institutions investors the the various stakeholders you come into contact with and then if you fancy going out and starting something on your own go and do it but my dad thought portfolio investment was a mugs game and that you should really invest in the company you knew best which was the company you worked in so this is counter to all the best advice you get which is diversify and you know don't have your pension and investment in the same company I, i i don't subscribe to that and neither did my dad the word entrepreneur by the way is always much misused it it means risk taker putting your money where your mouth is you know having your heart in your mouth when you get up in the morning and having motivation to build something Uh, and of course the qualities needed to build something or start something are very different to the qualities needed to run something very rarely do you find those qualities in the same people and so you get this sort of these twin camps of people who start things uh, and sell things or don't run them uh, and leave them to somebody else to run and people who run things but don't start. So you could characterize them as sort of owners and entrepreneurs and managers. Nothing wrong being being a manager. It's just different. And I think separation of ownership and control is one of the biggest fundamental problems that we have in the system. Managers tend to take short-term views. Owners tend to take long-term views with a vision and a long-term basis. Managers tend to react much more to short-term events and short-term pressures. And, you know, the average CEO of a, an uncontrolled listed company lasts for about five years, according, I think, to the latest data. So they think in five-year cycles, rather like sort of presidents or prime ministers, whether they, they think about the long term or not is another question. Absolutely. So I'd love to understand more about long-term thinking, but also understand the mindset of a buyer. So starting with a really quick question, how many businesses do you think you have acquired in your career? Lot. Is it hundred? <laughs> more than more, many more than that. But I mean, there's different situations. Each situation is unique. By and large, you know, it's it's the most important decision that a, an owner, manager, or entrepreneur will make in their lives, apart from getting married. And uh, so, it, it is really important. You have to treat everybody 
as though this is the most important decision in their lives. And I remember Victor and Wesley and Peter Rademacher, who were the principals at Media Monks, which was our first deal for S4 around the content vertical or the content practice, as we call it. And Accenture were competing against us. And I remember Peter telling me that the CFO of Accenture asked, what is the make of your telephone? Peter couldn't quite understand. You know, they produced these long questionnaires, you know, hundreds, maybe even thousands of questions. And it was a, a process that Accenture, some boffin somewhere in the center of Accenture in Paris, I think at that time, had come up with. And it was not only what telephone do you use, but what, what's the make of the console? And I think, you know, there was somebody somewhere in procurement at Accenture who was buying these consoles. I mean, quite bizarre. And and, and, and I think it drove Peter to distraction. And of course, he would then transmit his frustration to Victor and Wes, and they would throw their hands up in the air and say, what, what, what on earth? Why on earth do we want to be associated with these appalling people? This lack of understanding of how important every deal is uh, or every transaction is, because for the, the person on the other side of the fence or table or whatever, this is one of the most important decisions they'll make in their lives. And it gets treated as process. And you get bureaucrats dealing with it and you're often only as good as your lawyer. I mean, your lawyer has got to have the same sympathy or empathy. Your banker has to have the same sympathy and empathy and you you really can't treat people like shit, to put it crudely. Yeah. And is that your unfair advantage? I'm sure there are people that take the same view. I don't think it's the unfair advantage. I just think you have to be highly empathetic and sympathetic. You know, I had a conversation yesterday with a potential deal. And I would say establishing some sympathetic rapport with the principles is the critical issue. The first sentence of, of every conversation we have is, if you want to sell your company, we're not interested. If you want to buy into our philosophy, which is to build a new age, new era, advertising and marketing services model, and to take down or disrupt or disintermediate the old. It's very much a sort of Tesla-like, you know, to use a grand example, we're a pimple in comparison, but very much a, a messianic mission here. What we say to the principals, if you want to join us on this journey, please do. But if you want to sell out, go to Accenture or go to Dentsu or go to WPP and be a sausage in the machine. But this is different. You know, this is Bill Shankly. Football is not a matter of life and death. This is, it's more important than that. So S4 is not a matter of life and death. It's more important than that. <laughs> so apart from people being on the same page with you in, in believing and, and joining that, that mission, What's the one thing you always look for in a company? In the S4 model, it's top line growth. Uh, top line, like for like growth, what retailers call same store growth. We, we think that is the biggest driver of total shareholder return. That is not to the absence of margin, but it is strong like for like growth, particularly in a time like COVID. We're looking at a number of businesses which seem to have weathered COVID as well, or sometimes even better than we have. And we've weathered it, touch wood, pretty well. I would say that's the metric. When I was at WPP and Saatchi's, it was slightly different. The balance, we would look for top line growth, like for like growth, because that tells you, you know, how the company is growing, building market share. I would say consistent top line like for like growth is the critical metric. A, a lot of the growth is cloaked in where well, we were making investments. Yeah, I, and I understand that you have to make investments, but I think consistent margin growth is, or consistent margins, you don't have to have growth. And what do I mean by good margins? I, I don't mean 90% or 80%. I mean around the 20% 
22, 23, 24% margin. Uh, I understand that you have to invest to build businesses and that, that but there might be some fluctuation, but you get a very good feeling for, for how people think about their business. So I, I think if you ask me for one metric, you're on a desert island and only have one piece of information, I would say it's like for like top line growth. What's the one thing that founders get wrong when setting up their business for an exit? probably over investment because i think there is a balance to investment in the first half of this year our headcount was up 22 percent. we again invested in the first half of 19 in people because that's where we make our investment you know, about 60 percent of our net revenues are investments in people i so said our headcount was up by 22 percent almost double the rate of our gross profit now we've already as we got through july and august balanced it so at the end of august we're our top line growth and our bottom line growth are now exactly the same. So we're doing extremely well. Our margins are improving as we go through the second half of the year uh, because we built that capacity in the first half when our margins suffered a little bit, not much, but a little bit, we invested in the future. So I understand the need for investment, but I think probably the, you know, the thing I would highlight most is where people lose that balance between top and bottom line. Maybe it's because I'm 75. I do think we're in business to make money for the long term. I, I'm in it to build a, a business over the long term which is, as I said, what my dad always encouraged me to do. Maybe that's a weakness because maybe technological change is so violent that you can't do that anymore. If McKinsey's are right and the average age of a business is 17 years or life cycle of a business, then my theory is wrong. You know, I'm 75 and with S4, I probably have two cycles. Uh, you know, this is in the, the original prospectus, five to seven year cycles. So 10 to 14 years, I'll be doing this if I'm still alive. There is, it's an interesting question. I mean, there is this difference nowadays to, to my dad's generation. That was about long-term business building. And it may be that the volatility induced primarily by technology, but also by geographical fluctuation. You know, the geographical fluctuation in a minute with China, and the US has, I think, huge implications for how you run or you attempt to run and develop a global business. It's going to be very different if US and China are, are at war with one another economically or technologically, which it appears that they are. And it doesn't look as though that would be much different if it's President Biden as opposed to President Trump. If that is the case, then it's not just technology that is shifting the the paradigm, it's geography as well. So it become quite complex and you'll have different technological systems. You'll have a Chinese system, you'll have a US system. And given what Yandex is trying to do with a bank in Russia, you might even have a Russian system as well. So you'd be trying to deal with three different sort of variables and TikTok and Huawei, you see are potential casualties of that. And, you know, if TikTok and Huawei go that way, then you're going to have others wrestling. You know, the Chinese will retaliate. They will sanction people and sanction companies and you'll have a more fragmented, a, more, a much more difficult, much more chaotic situation than when, for example, we were building such strong businesses at WPP in China and India. So how does that complexity affect an M&A strategy? I mean, hugely. I mean, you know, geographically, we're 70% North and South America, we're 20% Western Europe, and we're 10% in, in Asia Pacific. And I wanted to be 40-20-40. We're in China, we're in Shanghai, we're in India, in Mumbai and Bangalore. 
but we're small and we want to be much bigger. But, you know, it's very interesting in China, what we've noticed in the last few months is that the, the businesses there, the clients there have become much more locally focused. Their propensity or the likelihood that they will deal with a foreign owned company is less now, I think, than it was before. Just like the world has become more fragmented and more nationalistic, you know, make make China great again instead of make America great again. So the Chinese, you know, it seemed to be moving that direction. The friction that you have now between China and Australia or the Philippines or the situation in Hong Kong, potentially in Taiwan, Japan, I mean, it's not good news. You know, India banning 100 Chinese apps. And so it makes it much more complex. I think that that's the, the difficulty. That might make entrepreneurs and unicorn builders more focused on individual markets. The US is still 24 trillion out of 72, 73, 74 trillion. So let's say a third of the world economy. China is what about 14, catching up fast in an absolute sense, but on the per capita basis has a long, long, long way to go. But, it, but things are becoming more fragmented, more localized, uh, less connected, less globalization. Directionally, we, we fail to explain the benefits of globalization to the workforce who were disenfranchised. We failed to retrain, reskill as the economies shifted geographically, uh, functionally in the way that they did. And so we're paying the price for that with increasing fragmentation. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, going back to something you said just slightly earlier, you said you are aiming for a 40-20-40 split geographically. Yeah. A decision like that, how is that decision made? Is that made by you? Is that made by the board? And how much is down to foresight and how much is down to the data? How does a big strategic kind of view get formed like that? Well, it's, it, it formulates over periods of time. Your views are conditioned by what you see and hear, not instantly done. I would say it's something that that was my view, and I talked to my colleagues about it and talked to uh, the board about it. And I think at WPP, we were a third, a third, a third, roughly. I think the balances have changed. North and South America become more important, and Asia, the bookends, becomes more important. I worry about Germany, France. Italy, Spain, and the UK, even though we're coming out of the EU, I worry about that region of the world as a proportion of worldwide GDP. And I think it is on the, the long-term trend down, whereas I still believe North and South America and Asia Pacific and the Middle East and Africa will increase their proportion of worldwide GDP. You know, I'd love to do a big deal in, in India and in China. The trouble is both markets are not transparent. They're very opaque, and particularly in China, in me the media area, there are a lot of sticky fingers and a lot of opacity, and our model is a transparent model. Uh, we're not mucking around in non-transparent areas where there are sticky fingers. And in fact, in China, President Xi, who you know came in partly on a mandate to eliminate corruption, made it a uh, part of the scorecard of the chairman and CEOs of the SASAC companies to eliminate corruption, and that's a big area. But I'd love to do something of scale in China. And I love those countries. And I, I really think there's massive opportunity. And the talent there is huge. I mean, you're 1.3, 1.4 billion people in both countries. And India will surpass China in terms of population. And some very talented, underestimated people, I think. Yeah, absolutely. So on people, what's the single trait that you admire most in a founder? I think yeah, ability to take risk. I mean, persistent. I would say risk and persistence. 
speed i mean my motto uh, you know when you get knighted you have to go to the college of heraldry and you create a, a shield and a, a motto my motto is built around persistence and speed and so i think those are qualities that are really important but you have to persistence i think probably is the because you know often you, you get rejected you get told that you're crazy and if you have a belief in an idea in a concept i think being persistent with it continuing to hammer away if you believe in what you you're you're trying to do i think that that is probably the most important thing and then i think you know subsidiary to that would be speed what is your motto persistentia et claritati i think it's like something like persistence and speed my latin o level i failed latin o level frequently i had to get it to get into university and i eventually got i think i sat about eight o level boards and i think i got eight passes but my university place depended on me getting latin o level i was appalling at latin latin i used to loathe it I got a B, I think, at GCSE, but it was a long well, time. Well, you did, you did much better. I failed. <laughs> I failed twice. I failed twice and then I had to get it in desperate circumstances. Yeah. So persistence and speed, very important. But persistence with a vision, presumably, because yes, you yeah. towards something and other people may not see it immediately, but the, the founder is working on something they believe in and, and they are you know, working every day, hungry, hungry, hungry to, to get there. So I'm really interested to get your take on vision that, that's that's cool i mean you know our vision around s4 was create to 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 build the new age new era advertising and marketing services model uh, and to disintermediate the existing model to take them down and that's that's the objective and there were four characteristics uh, focusing totally on digital because that's where the growth is uh, this holy trinity model, as we call it, a first-party data driving the creation of digital advertising content and pumping that out algorithmically or programmatically in a continuous loop. Faster, better, cheaper. Faster about agility. Better meaning understanding the hardware companies, the software companies, and the platforms and their relative merits. We're not a technology company. We're not dependent on technology. We 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 understand. We try and understand technology and new technologies. So we try and understand Google and Facebook and Amazon, Tencent and Alibaba and TikTok, depending on where that goes. Apple and Microsoft, uh, uh, Adobe, Oracle, Salesforce, IBM, SAP, Twitter, Pinterest, Snap, Spotify, Netflix. Palantir. Yeah, yes, Palantir as well. I remember going to Allen & Co and seeing a presentation from, it was probably the uh, Alan Coe's conference, I think they did it in Phoenix. And the, on the Saturday, they had these elevator pitches. And we saw, I remember, it must be about 10, 15 years ago, the elevator pitch from Palantir. I think Rupert Murdoch invested in them. So when you started S4, you had a very clear vision that you'd developed from the context of all your experience. I basically looked at WPP and there were bits of WPP were growing and bits that were falling. And the bits that were growing were first party data, digital advertising content and programmatic or digital media. So I said, I'm not going to do any of the traditional stuff because that's not growing. Let's focus on the digital. So we only do digital, which... To some extent, it can be a disadvantage because if somebody's got a big traditional thing, but traditional has become too commoditized. It's too dominated by procurement. It's not growing enough. And I believe in looking up at the sky and not looking at your boots. And I think with more of the traditional stuff, you're just, you're just looking at the boots. It's become too cost-orientated. Is legacy important to you? 
Uh, it probably was important to my mother or my father, but no, no, not really. I mean, I, I'm interested in what we're doing being successful, not because of legacy, but because we started with an idea, uh, literally a sheet of paper sitting in an office on your own. That was two and a bit years ago. And here we are with 3,000 people in 31 countries, a market cap of £2 billion, you know, a double unicorn. And I think it's never been done in the advertising and marketing services industry that I can find. If somebody's got, if somebody can find one, send it to me. We've achieved a lot in two years, but we have a long, long way to go. And, you know, we're just at the beginning. So we've had brand awareness in 2018. We had a brand trial in 2019. We're now getting conversion at scale in 2020. We just won a major piece of this BMW. We have three massive, for us, massive clients, Google, one other tech company, which uh, well-known tech company, a highly valued tech company, which we're NDA'd on. And then thirdly, BMW. And we are, our objective is uh, 20 squared, which is 20 of those whoppers, as we call them, 20 million in a year revenues. And we think you know, we'll have another one shortly. Uh, and then by the end of the year, maybe another tech company. So we'll maybe going into 2021, we'll have four or five of whom two or three will be tech companies. So we're very tech oriented. Well over half of our $400 million of revenues come from the tech companies. You know, And last night I got an email saying we won another big slug of another one of those tech companies. So on the media side of the business, which was really encouraging, fantastically encouraging. So that was a great email to receive as I went to bed at 11 o'clock at night. So do you, do you still have those experiences where one email can make or break? Your- yeah, oh, ab- absolutely, yes. I mean, that was the case. I mean, BMW adds 10%, you know, it's 165 million euros over five years. You know, that, that adds well over 30 a year. And of course, obviously, the scope of that, that's just for Europe, the scope of that can be increased over time. So, uh, yes, you know, absolutely. And you, you go for it. But we prefer actually the, the land and expand rather than the big pitch uh, approach. The best line I could give if there were any clients listening would be give us your biggest problem and let us wrestle with it i'm pretty sure we can if not solve it come up with an interesting possible solution they'll like working with us find it faster better cheaper and then from that we'll you know from acorns oak trees grow and we we build oak trees we build relationships it's what we did with google what, what we're doing with that other tech company what we're doing with bmw hopefully from sitting around the table with a piece of paper what was the first big win with s4 the first big thing we did was media monks i mean we competed against accenture we competed against the I mean, historical thing about extension was the guy who was negotiating for accenture with media monks didn't know that we were in the auction and he approached me for a job so the guy who was negotiating for accenture was looking for a job with us when we were both going after the same. No, the big, the first big breakthrough for us was obviously Mediamax. It was a fraught situation because WPP would, were, were trying to uh, derail the offer and be as difficult as possible. And we're playing dirty, as they well know. But you know, it didn't succeed. And we won through that. And then I think the second big test was adding the second pillar to our business. So we, we'd established the content pillar. And then we added the, the pillar around... Uh, data and analytics and digital media with Mighty High at the end of 18. So we went into 2019 with our business in position, 
listed on September the 13th, 2018, so a little over two years ago. And the rest is history. Then we added seven units to Media Monks and seven units to Mighty Hive. And we've now, we're bringing them together as, as one. You'll see as we go into next year, as we develop our unitary branding. So I was going to try and ask what happened between the paper and Media Monks. Well, I mean, it came very quickly. I mean, I announced I was resigning on March the 14th. 2018 I had a month to clear up my bits and pieces in New York basically in London that was so I left April the 14th I think we formed the company in May S4 which is a private company and it was S4 at the end of June um, made you know I went to institutions and raised 50 million pounds so I put 40 of my own money in and we raised 11 from 10 or so institutions on the understanding there wasn't a legal commitment that they would underwrite the first deal which they did and they underwrote it as a public company with the the likelihood that we would inject it into a public company we found this shell derriston one of nigel ray's um, shells and we injected it and since then we had a reasonable start as a result of that uh raised money uh for mighty hive at the end of 18 uh, did another raise and then another raise. We raised about a total of 450 million pounds. Uh, I put in myself about 60 of it and um, market cap now is 2 billion. So, I mean, definitely living by your motto of speed there. <laughs> I mean, that's pretty quick. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm old, so we have to get, we have to get cracking. I mean, it's amazing, really. So uh, on a sort of day-to-day level, what's something that you think you do that allows you to be quick that maybe others don't? I don't know. I mean, I, mean, I guess I'm, I'm very committed to the business, maybe uh, maniacally so. Like, as my, I always quote this Harvard Business School professor, George Cabot-Lodge, who had this theory, life is a balance of three circles, one around family, one around career, one around society. And I probably over-index on the career part of it. Uh, so I spend a lot of time thinking about it. It is 24-7. Uh, I work on Saturdays and Sundays, not not crazily, but, you know, I do. I write to everybody on a, on, a, on a Sunday. I spend my Sunday afternoon doing a brief communication every week uh, now on how we're doing with people, how we're doing with our clients, how we're doing with our finances, just to keep everybody up to, up to speed on what we're doing. It's like sort of a diary, I guess, almost of what's gone on in the previous week and what's going to happen in the next week. Then we meet every day uh, every day we the key eight of us meet uh, some a couple based in Singapore a couple based in Amsterdam a couple I'm based in London one based in New York or Scottsdale Arizona or Denver and we talk about those three subjects make sure we're up to date uh, but I think the answer to your to your question is you know we just try and deal with everything if I delay on something it's because I don't know the answer or I'm unsure of the answer um, I just think you, you have to make decisions quickly. And the trick is you can't have a perfect record making more good decisions than bad ones. You know, if you're five, four, good to bad, you'll probably get ahead. Yeah. And so if you're heavily engaged with the business the whole time, where do you find space for free strategic creative thinking and what's your process for that? Uh, well, I think okay, continuously. If you, you haven't got a solution to, to a problem, read all the facts around that problem or the data around that problem and uh, you know, have it in the back of your brain and then forget about it. 
right? And the way the brain works, and I think there is some neurological or medical justification for what I'm about to say, but if you can imagine this, and it's a pretty horrible thought, uh, I find actually, funny enough, in the shower or if I'm shaving in the morning, I don't know, it's something to do with the way the, the brain relaxes when you're relaxed. And suddenly, all this stuff is in your brain, in your brain cells. You're unconsciously thinking about them and you suddenly get a eureka moment. So some of my best thoughts have come, if I've had any, have come in that process where, yeah. I, where I haven't actually been thinking about it and suddenly whoosh. Yeah, well, why didn't I think of that? And then you're off to the races. Yeah, that's amazing. Thank you so much, Samat. It's been really great to have you on. All um, right. Good luck, James. Thank you very much. All right. God bless. See you soon. Thank Cheers. you. Right. Ciao. Bye. What a way to kick off the podcast. It was an absolute pleasure interviewing Sir Martin. It was really fun recording the episode. We've got lots of new episodes coming up. Episode two is with Andrew Scott from 7% Ventures. He was the first investor into Oculus, which was sold to Facebook for a billion dollars and uh, has had numerous successes, but that's one of the most high profile ones. So keep an eye out for that episode and please do subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. See you next time.